A while ago, John Piper said a statement that caused, let us say, much conversation among theologians. You may have heard the statement that justification is by faith alone, but John Piper upped the ante. John Piper said, not only is justification by faith alone, but sanctification is by faith alone. Now, what should we make of this statement? Is, in fact, sanctification by faith alone? Well, we know that justification is a monergistic work. Mono meaning one, justic referring to work. So this is a singular work of God. It is God alone who justifies the sinner. The sinner has sinned, and God needs to make the sinner just as if they never sinned. I.e., justify them. And this is based on faith and faith alone. We are not saved by faith plus good works. But theologians have often pointed out that sanctification is by God and man cooperating together. That is, sanctification is a synergistic work. We grow in our sanctification by growing in godliness and being devoted to good works, which was the very purpose of the reason why God called us in the first place. So how can one say that sanctification is by faith alone when sanctification, in fact, includes good works and is synergistic. Now, at some point, some may want to just say, that's enough. I've heard enough from John Piper. I knew he was a heretic all along. Get him out of here. Others may want to defend him to the end. He can do no wrong. This is perfectly just, even though I don't even understand what the statement means. Well, the reality is that it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that. But I've come here not to preach John Piper. I've come here to preach the Word of God. So what we're going to see in our text is a relationship between sanctification and faith. Is sanctification by faith alone, or what is, how do these two concepts relate? And after the sermon, hopefully you'll be able to better assess the truthfulness of John Piper's statement, or at least the plain meaning of John Piper's statement, versus what the Bible says. And if you are curious of what I think John Piper said, come talk to me after the sermon. We can talk about it. So in light of that, please open up your Bibles to Jude chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 20 and 21. You could find the book of Jude, the little book, by going to the very back of the books, hit the index, flip over, Revelation, flip over one more time, and you'll hit the little book of Jude. Jude chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, the central command in our passage is to keep yourselves in the love of God. In fact, it's the only actual verb, it's an imperative, that's actually found in the passage. Everything else is a participle that is connected to this main verb or main imperative. And so the central command in our passage is to keep yourself in the love of God. The circumstances of which we're to do this is while you await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, the means of doing this is by building yourselves up in, in respect to your most holy faith, and this is accomplished by praying in the Holy Spirit. And that's a mouthful. I don't expect you to remember all that. So we're going to break it down piece by piece. So first off, let's look at the central command of the passage, which is to keep yourself in the love of God. 
Now, what in the world does that mean? Is that a phrase that you have heard? Is that kind of the Christianese language we speak? We say, brother, how are you doing? Are you keeping yourself in the, the love of God? Maybe you go to a different church than I go to. Nobody's ever said that to me, and I've never said that to anybody else. Because it's an unusual phrase, but it's a biblical phrase. So what does it mean? Well, one way that we can figure out what a text means is comparing Scripture with Scripture. And one of the places in the Bible that we see a very similar idea is found in John chapter 15. Hear the word of our Lord. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keep yourself in the love of God. Abide in my love. Very similar concept. What does it mean to abide? Where do you abide? Where is your abode? This is the place that you dwell in. This is a location. But we're called to abide in the love of God or in the love of Christ. Now, if you go into the context of John chapter 15, maybe some of you know this chapter. Hopefully you do. If not, remember this chapter. This chapter is very important because this is the chapter where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? A few good things? A couple good things? You can do nothing. That's John 15. And there... He says, in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Three times he said, abide in me. And if there's any question of what it means to abide in Christ, Christ also says, I will abide in you. Does anybody know a passage in the Bible that says, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Don't we say that we are the temple of God and his spirit dwells in us, which is Christ present, the spirit of the Father and the spirit of the Son in us? So Christ being in us is not just some metaphor. We really are the temple of God. We really do have union with Christ with, us, with him being in us. And so we too really are in him. So to abide in the love of the Son is to abide in the Son. To be in union with him. Think about wedding. Think about marriage. When the Bible says that we are married to Christ. That really the whole institution of marriage is to symbolize a spiritual reality that happens when the sinner is now become the saint and unified and married to the Savior. That's that unification of two becoming one flesh. It's unification language. And so we are called to abide. We are called to be in unification with the Son and to abide and to rest in that union of love. So what does it mean to abide in my love? What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to keep yourselves in the love of God? It means to stay in unification, to stay in marriage covenant, to stay connected to the vine and to remain in him. Look at Jude's own words. Look back, if, you have, if you're still in Jude, look at Jude verse 1. Jude verse 1, 1, it says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be beloved in God the Father? It means that you are loved based on your unification with the Father. This is the central idea that we need to understand about sanctification, about salvation. Excuse me. 
is that we are beloved, that these spiritual blessings come to us based on our connection with him. It's not you. You're not special. God is special. Christ is special. In Romans chapter 8, it says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That little preposition in is very important. Because you're not in Christ Jesus, there is much condemnation. The wrath of God abides on you. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's only in Christ. Or think about Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where do we receive the spiritual blessings? All of them are found in Christ. You receive nothing outside of Christ. You receive everything in Christ. In fact, the Bible explicitly says that. What are we apart from Christ? With Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Apart from Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 says in verse 12, Remember that when you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood, for he himself is our peace. So outside of Christ, we're alienated from God. Outside of Christ, we are not the people of God. We're the people of Satan. Outside of Christ, we are strangers of the covenant of promise. We have no hope. We are without God, and the wrath of God abides on us. Get the idea? You are nothing outside of Christ. And in Christ, you are everything, based on your connection to him. And this means that Christ gets all the glory. We are Christians. We point to him. We're elevated because he was elevated. We're saved because he rose from the dead. You're not special. Christ is special. You do not deserve anything but hell, but Christ is the one who deserves all glory and praise, and that's why if you're clothed in Christ, then God will not see you for your sin, but will see him in his righteousness. You know, that's biblical language. The Bible says that we should put on Christ. We need to be clothed in the robes of his righteousness, and that's actually what spiritual baptism symbolizes. In Galatians 3.27, it says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have been put have put on Christ. And again, the word baptism right here, baptizo means to immerse, it means to plunge, it means to dip. As many of you have been dipped, plunged, emerged, have been placed in the location of Christ, you have put on Christ. And in this way, you're covered by his righteousness. So again, you're not special. God is special. And when you get connected to Christ, you become special. Now, what happens if you abandon Christ? If you're nothing without Christ, what would happen if you once again become without Christ? Well, we can have our own speculations, but let's see what the Bible says about this matter. Please turn to Romans chapter 11. Keep your finger in Jude, because we'll be back there. But let's consider what the Scripture says, what happens if we, having put on Christ aside, now we're special, and we don't need Christ anymore, because he's just the horse that got us to the location, and then we can abandon the horse at that point. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Romans 11, verse 17. Now some of the branches have been broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others to share in the nourishment of the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, remember this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Verse 19. You will say to me then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. That is correct. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. 
Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will certainly not spare you either. Take notice, therefore, the kindness and severity of God, severity to those who fell, but kindness to you. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will lose a few rewards in heaven. But you'll still get there. Is that what your Bible says? I don't have that Bible. That's tradition. That's religion. The Bible says, otherwise, you will be cut off. To be cut off is a reference to being sent to hell. The reality is, it says, do not be arrogant. All oh, Jews were cut off, but not me. I'll never be cut off. I'm good. I can do whatever I want. I can live like the devil. And God's just stuck with me. I heard somebody said that. God's just stuck with you. Well, is that what the Bible says? God's just stuck with you? It says, do not be arrogant. Take notice, therefore, the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who fell off, but kindness to you if you continue in his kindness. We don't have to be theologians to know an if-then conditional statement. If you come to my house, then you'll get some fried chicken. You're not getting fried chicken if you don't come to my house. You have to meet the condition. You ask me why you didn't get fried chicken? Because you didn't come to my house. You come to my house, you will get the fried chicken. If we continue in his kindness, then God will continue have kindness to us, and we will be finally saved. If we do not continue in God's kindness, we will be cut off. The scripture is extremely clear on this matter. There's many other passages that say this. Matthew chapter 24. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you do not endure to the end, you will not be saved. 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we endure, then we will also reign with him. Endurance to the end is absolutely necessary. One must endure to the end in order to be saved. If you do not finish the race, you will not receive the prize. It's just that simple. What does it mean for Christ to deny you? Do we, does anybody, can anybody think of a biblical passage where somebody professes Christ and Christ denies them? I can think of a couple. There's a parable of the virgins. You remember? They bang on the door, Lord, Lord. He says, what? I don't know you. Or the most scary passage, according to R.C. Sproul, I think he was right, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. To deny you is, I don't know you. I don't know you. And those are the most terrifying and horrible words that one could ever hear. So we must absolutely endure to the end. If we do not endure to the end, we will be cut off. We must remain in the realm of Christ, otherwise we will perish with the world. Let's consider a biblical picture. Think about the ark. If you're outside of the ark, are you going to be saved? The waters of death were going to come upon you, and you were going to drown in those waters of death. But if you were in the ark, and the ark symbolizes Christ, you were to survive and pass through the waters of death and safely enter the new earth. Now, what would happen if you decided, you know what, this ark is kind of stinky. And Noah, I don't like this guy anymore. I'm jumping off the ark. Do you think you would survive? Good luck. You would die just like the rest of the world. And so too we. If we abandon Christ, if we jump off the boat of the Lord, we too will be destroyed. 
Or think about the Egyptians. Think about when the Egyptians, when, uh, the Egyptians tried to follow the Israelites as they went through the Red Sea. What happened? The waters of death came and destroyed them. And only those who were following with God were able to get through the sea of death. But, as Pastor Neil preached, they did not at that point enter into the promised land, did they? They did not. They then had to walk through the wilderness, and if they refused to follow the Lord, what happened? Well, think about Korah's rebellion. They got swallowed up, and they went straight to Hades. So we, too, must remain in Christ. We must continue to follow him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if one shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He has no pleasure in those who shrink back. And this is referring to ultimately hell because the very next verse says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the author of Hebrews has confidence that even though if we shrink back, God will have no pleasure, i.e. that we'll be destroyed, we won't be like those people who shrink back to the destruction of the soul, but we'll be like those people who preserve for the preservation of the soul. And therefore, the Bible is 100% clear that if you abandon Christ, if you reject the faith, you will not be in heaven with God. You'll be in hell with the devil. And this is called the warning of apostasy. The Bible is full of warnings of apostasy. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in that whole context, it's talking, making a parallel, and I've already referenced that, uh, between unbelieving Israel, who died in the wilderness, and Christians who are living in this wilderness generation. And in that context, here's what it says in verse 12. You might know this passage, but how many of us actually know the context of this passage? Here's what it says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Anyone quoted that passage before? Usually it goes something like this. You see someone boasting, I'm the greatest, I'm awesome, I'm amazing. Right? And they'll be like, hey, take heed. If anyone thinks he stands, lest he might fall. Basically, God will knock down the proud. But actually, in the context, that's a good application, but the context is actually talking about take heed of your Christian walk. Take heed of this wilderness generation. Do not fall into sexual immorality. Do not walk around thinking, I'm invincible, I'm indestructible. Because if you do that, you might fall. Take heed, lest you fall. And this is the attitude that Paul had. Paul didn't walk around saying, I'm the invincible man who can't be possibly destroyed. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, to be shipwrecked, to be reprobated. So we should never go around pretending like we are an invincible person, that God promised that we would be bulletproof and we can just walk through bullets and get shot as many times and we'll never die. That's not how it is at all. If you get shot, you will die, right? You go out there in the battlefield and people are shooting and you get right in front of the line of fire, you're going to die. And that's how it is. There are a thousand different things, a thousand thousand different false ways and pits between us and heaven. Think about Pilgrim's Progress. Isn't that the whole theme? There's all these false ways, all these false pits, and they're real dangers. Apollyon wasn't just giving Christian a massage. He was out there trying to kill Christian. There was a hundred different ways for Christian to die, but yet Christian made it to the end. And that's the true biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's not that there are false dangers out there. There are real dangers. It's not that they won't kill us. They will kill us. It's not that we can't possibly be killed by them. We can be killed by them. But by God's grace, we will endure to the end if we have truly come and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And one of the ways that we endure to the end is by taking seriously the apostasy passages. Okay? Not by making them a joke. Not by saying that can't possibly be any but taking heed lest you fall. See, here's what God does. God says, if you do this, you'll be destroyed. And then God's spirit in you causes you to believe that. 
It causes you to take that seriously. And it causes you not to be presumptuous about sin. Not to say it doesn't matter how I live or what I do, but it very much does. And if I live like the devil, I'll end up like the devil, so I won't do that. And when I do slip into that, I will repent of my sins and return back to the God who saved me. That's how it works. So it is true that we will endure to the end if we have truly come and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Look to Jude 1, 1 again. Not only does it say that we are beloved in connection with God the Father, but it also says we are kept, we are guarded for Christ Jesus. God guards us. God does not leave us and abandon us to fight the world, the flesh, and devil by ourselves. Because if he did, we would all fail. Or Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we are eternally secure in Christ. But it's not because there's no real dangers out there. It's because Christ warns us of those dangers, and we will obey those commands and avoid those dangers. And even when we do slip, we will rise again. That we fall down six times, we will rise the seventh time. But none of that justifies being presumptuous. None of that goes around and says it doesn't matter how I live or makes this passage in Jude one twenty three say something it doesn't say. It clearly says keep yourselves in the love of God. He's telling you to do this. This is something that you should say, I need to make sure I remain in the love of God. And where is the love found? In his beloved. I need to make sure that I remain in Christ. We'll put it very simply. This whole doctrine that I'm trying to communicate to you can be encapsulated wonderfully in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. They're both true. You should be afraid. There should be a sense that you should be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There should be a sense that you should see that the world really is trying to destroy you. The devil is working overtime to destroy your soul. But praise be to the Lord that it's God who's also working in us to constantly go back to God and his grace and sustain, sustain our faith by the attacks of the devil. So we see the command is that we are to abide, to remain, to keep ourselves in the love of God. So how do we do that? One, we see the need, so we've been talking about this whole time. We need to do it. The second thing is we need to, again, remember that the love of God isn't just some vacuumous concept that comes over you, but this is a concept that abides in Christ. So you obey this command to keep yourself in the love of God by remaining in the love of Christ or remaining in Christ by not abandoning him. The second way that we remain or keep ourselves in the love of God is to do what the passage tells us in verse 20. Verse 20 says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, here, I don't usually like disagreeing with uh, translations, but I'm not a huge fan of the ESV here, to be honest with you. Because there, in verse 20, it says, it makes it sound like there's two different commands. Build yourself up and pray, as if they're two different things. But if you go back in the Greek, there is no word and. Just delete the word and. If you have a KJV or New King James, you'll see that. It says, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. They are not two different things. This is one thing, and the other thing explains how you do that one thing, namely build yourself up in your most holy faith. So what does it mean to build yourself up in your most holy faith? Well, the picture here is the construction of a building. You lay a foundation, but that's not. The building won't be built because you have a foundation, right? All you do, all you have is a foundation. In fact, the old church that I used to go to, they, um, they believed that God was calling them to build a building, despite the fact they had no money to do it. 
despite the fact that all signs suggested that they shouldn't build that building. But they went on anyways and continued to try to build this building. And you know how far they got? They laid a foundation. That was it. There was no building. It never came up. Because a foundation is not a building. Right? You need the whole building. So we lay a foundation, but we need to build on top of that foundation to have the full building to be built there. And we call a building is when that you have a foundation, everything else is complete. And that's our Christian life. We have a foundation, but we need to build on top of that foundation. The foundation is our Christian life is Jesus Christ. Our salvation began with conversion to him just as we are. But we do not stay there. But rather, we are to grow up in our salvation. That's, that's the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We do grow in respect to salvation. We do grow as Christians. We do not become more saved. We're already saved. But as Christians, we become more mature in that salvation and grow in godliness. Or even, it's kind of interesting, pastor took all of my verses in his sermon. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, Make every effort to, supp- to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not to just simply have faith. Yes, you are only saved by faith, but you are to continue to grow in all of these other godly disciplines. And if you do not, then you will be ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved you by faith alone. And he did not save you based on good works, but he saved you to be devoted to good works. Or Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace through faith, and not of yourselves is the gifts of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The very next verse says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. They talk about it. Yeah, that's true, too. Right? You go to another passage that said we're to proclaim the excellencies of his glorious grace who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But that text is supplemented with this text, which says, for good works. We're created to proclaim Jesus Christ and to live a godly life. Ephesians 4.15 says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We're not just to be stagnant. We're to continue to grow in godliness. We're to continue to build ourselves up. We're continue to grow in our most holy faith. We're not to stay stagnant. We should be trying to continue to grow in the Lord. Now the phrase, our most holy faith here, refers to growing in faith. That we should be people who not only believe in Christ, but want to grow in our belief in Christ. The reason it's called most holy faith is because faith is the instrument God uses to make you holy. Right? Isn't it that he accounts based on our faith, we get unified to Christ, and based on that union with Christ, then he gives us his righteousness. So the way that we grow up in salvation is the same way we enter salvation, by faith. And if you think about it, when Jesus was constantly critiquing the disciples, what did he say to them? Oh, ye of little good works. I don't know what Bible you have. He said, oh, ye of little faith. Their little faith resulted in their little good works. The more faith we have, the more good works that will follow our faith. So the real way that we grow in our salvation is not just to try harder, but it's to grow in our faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is the real problem. Yes, our faith is real, but often our faith is small. If you really think about it, often our faith is small. Or our faith is smothered, and our faith is distracted. We have our faith here, but then we're thinking about this all the time over here. 
If we want to grow in godliness, we need to focus over here more about our faith and increasing this area. And as our faith increases, so will our life be more and more transformed by that faith. Just think about it. Think about a professional basketball player or a professional tennis player, or maybe a professional hiker, whatever it might be. Do you think they spend a little bit of time on their craft or a lot of bit of time? A little bit of energy or a lot of bit of energy? I barely ever think about basketball, despite me training eight hours a day, six days a week. No. They're constantly thinking about basketball. Their thinking about basketball changes their behavior. And so, too, as we think about God, we think about his promises, as we grow in faith, so, too, that is the secret of transforming our lives. It's to grow in faith, and everything else will follow. And that's why we must cry out like the man in Mark 9, 24, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. The way that we can grow in salvation is growing in faith. And even if you think about that passage, Mark 9, 24, who's he talking to? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He's talking to Jesus, the Son of God. And so, too, we can grow in faith by talking to the Father, talking to God, and saying this very thing, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's exactly what our passage says, doesn't it? Look to verse 20 again. Build yourself up in your most holy spirit. Delete the am because it's not there. Praying in the Holy Spirit. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith precisely by praying in the Holy Spirit, by going to God and asking him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, make me more righteous. Make me believe more. Help me to stop being distracted by everything in the world. Instead, look to you and look to your promises. James 4.34 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. May it not be that way to us. As we try to work out our salvation and fear of tripling, may we be people who ask the Lord, Help my faith. Help me grow. Help me believe in your promises. We must pray in the Holy Spirit. We must pray prayers asking God to give us more faith so that we can grow in the Lord. Faith is our shield. It is by faith that we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The bigger shield we have, the more we can ward off the assaults of the evil one. We need to grow in faith. This is the way that we build ourselves up, and this is the way that we keep ourselves in the love of Christ. It's by growing in that faith. It's by praying, God, help me, and continue to hold on to Christ with all of our might, knowing that he holds on to us ultimately. Now let's conclude our passage by looking at that very last section, the circumstances of our salvation. What are we doing as we are building ourselves up, as we are praying in the Holy Spirit, in order to keep ourselves in the love of God? It says there at the very end of our passage, we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the Christian life. It's a life of hope. And that's glorious. Because without Christ, you have no hope. Without Christ, you're just pretending like you won't die. And then wondering what will happen after you die. Which, to be honest, being terrified of what's going to happen when you do die. Because you know that you will face an angry God. But for the Christian, we're not, well, I was going to say we're not waiting to die, but we are waiting to die. Or be caught up into the sky with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. The Christian life is good now. Mostly. Some, sometimes. Generally speaking, it, it can be good. But the real hope, the real cash value is what we're waiting for. No matter how good or bad it is now, you keep holding on and wait to see what the Lord will do. Because the Lord is going to come and we have received mercy now. He saved us from our sin now. But the fullness of that salvation has not yet been experienced, and it is coming, and that's the great hope that we have. So let's be people who are waiting 
for this future mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is by faith alone. Lord, but we recognize that you have not simply saved us here for us to be just saved people who do nothing for you, who live like the devil and just uh, blaspheme your name every single day. That is not who you've called us to be. You've called us to work out that salvation in fear of trembling. You called us to grow in the Lord. You called us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to build ourselves up, and to pray in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would do all these things. Help us to not allow our lives to be tricked and uh, distracted by the devil. Help us not to think that doubt is a virtue, but to recognize that it's a pernicious evil that seeks to destroy our soul. Help us, Lord, to not be people who are arrogant and uh, are presumptuous, but be people who truly are afraid of hell, but are comforted that your people will never go there because of your grace and your grace alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.